Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan is specifically going to be talking about Isaac and Gerar in Genesis 26, and he's going to give an overview of different aspects of the passage which help you see how the narrative fits in the Bible. Throughout this talk, he's going to talk about the theme of going to the Gentiles, as well as different sequences and pairs of events in Genesis and how God also works that way in history. Often, we tend to overlook the Gentiles when we think about the Old Testament, but God was not just saving circumcised Jews in the Old Covenant, He was also saving a people for Himself from the Gentile nations. We really hope that you enjoy and are edified and sharpened by this really fascinating talk. And as always, thank you so much for listening. This week we come to the story of Isaac and Gerar, which is in chapter 26. And what I'm going to do this week is talk about overview aspects of this and how it fits in the overall narrative of the Bible. Last week we spent time introducing the idea of famines. This week we want to talk about the theme of going to the Gentiles, which is the whole purpose of calling Abraham in the first place was to bless the Gentiles. They were never called to have a blessing for themselves primarily, but to provide blessing to others. And so this is real important. And there are things in this narrative in Genesis 26 that we won't see unless we make some contrasts and comparisons with the other narratives of going off into Gentile territory in Genesis, which is what happens over and over and over again. And so I want to do that this week and just consider the structure. In Genesis 26, what happens is, at the beginning, we'll just kind of skim the content before we begin. You've got a famine. It says it's like the former, you know, in addition to the former famine, which was in the days of Abraham, which kicks in the head any notion that we've got the same story here that's just been duplicated the writer is very careful to tell us that there are two famines. In fact, as we saw last week, famines just keep coming because the land doesn't want the people in it at this point in history. So Isaac goes to Abimelech, Abimelech as we say in English, of the Philistines, that's Egyptian territory, it's on the way to Egypt. And then in verse 2 it says, God appears to him in a theophany, the word theophany means appearance of God. Theo, God, son, root meaning appear. Epiphany is the appearance of Christ. After Christmas comes epiphany season and then comes Lent. Epiphany has to do with the revelations of Christ. The revelation to the Gentiles when the Magi come, that's Epiphany Day. And then the revelation is baptism, revelation of Satan, and culminating in the transfiguration which leads into Lent. That's how the church year is structured in those churches that employ it. Phano, appearance. Theophany, appearance of God, and God appears to him. Yahweh was seen by him and said, don't go down to Egypt, but stay here. And he talks to him about Abraham, and he says, Abraham was righteous, so you get blessed. And so, since God reminds him of Abraham, Isaac does exactly what Abraham did. He says, this beautiful woman here is my sister and doesn't tell him that she's his wife. So that happens again here. And then 
in verse 8 it says, After he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through the window and saw. And behold, there was Yitzhak laughing and loving with Rivka his wife. And Abimelech had Yitzhak called and said, But here, she must be your wife. Now how could you say she is my sister? And Yitzhak said to him, Indeed, I said to myself, Otherwise I'll die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might well have lain with your wife, and then you would have brought guilt upon us. I guess you just stand there and take it what some fool says that to you. But hey, if one of the men had raped your wife, it would have been your fault. You would have brought guilt on us. It's amazing how many commentators think that this is right. It's incredible to me. So Abimelech blames him for things that were his own fault. Isaac was obviously right. This is a culture where men just kind of casually rape women when they feel like it. Abimelech says as much. So Isaac had good reason to be nervous and to imitate his righteous father in a righteous deception. But Abimelech commands the people to leave him alone. Well, then we see Isaac lives there. He sows in that land and reaps a hundred measures. And he became great and went on, went on becoming greater until he was exceedingly great. And he had herds of sheep and herds of oxen and servants. And the Philistines envied him. All this prosperity gets him in trouble. You're not allowed to be prosperous. We'll pull you down if you start to get ahead. And the Philistines had killed the wells that Abraham had dug. And Abimelech says... We can't have you living here. You go away from us. And so he goes and encamps in the Wadi of Gerar. The Wadi is a low-lying area. I will discuss that more later on. He digs up more wells, and there's a whole bunch of stuff about wells. He digs a well, and the Philistines come and fight with him. He digs another well, and they fight with him. He digs another well. And finally, he digs a well, and they leave him alone. And then God appears to him, verse 24. Yahweh was seen by him on that night and says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the one who's been blessing you, and I'll continue to bless you. In other words, you've had some struggles, but now you're being blessed, and I'm the one who brought this to pass. You aren't the one. You could have dug in the ground from now till doomsday, and you never would have found any water. And if you found water, they would have fought you over every bit of water that you ever found. But the fact that you finally found some water that they don't fight with you about, I'm the one who did that, says Yahweh. And I'm going to continue to bless you, and that's just how it's going to be. And so he builds an altar, verse 25. He built a slaughter site there, an altar, and called on the name of Yahweh, introduced worship there, and they dug a well there. So more wells. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzat, his friend, that's a technical term, and Phicol, commander of his army. And they want to make a covenant with Isaac because now they're ready to acknowledge that Yahweh, he is God. And so they have an oath there and they find water and the place is called Beersheba, the well of the oath or the well of seven. It means both. And uh, actually this is the second time this area was named Beersheba. And we'll have to deal with all that when we come to the details. But that's the story. Now let's look at how I've got the story outlined here on page 12. Isaac and Gerar. If we start to take as large a picture as we can, we have Jacob and Esau, which we dealt with the last several weeks. 
Jacob and Esau bickering over the firstborn rights. And Esau despising the firstborn rights and Jacob getting the firstborn rights. Let's make that the opening thing. I'm going to start with Jacob and Esau because that's where the story starts when it repeats. A famine forces them out. They have to go. They have to leave the promised land, Isaac and his family, and they go to Gerar, which is the land that is in between the promised land and Egypt. Philistines are Egyptians. Here's Egypt, and here's Philistia, and here's Canaan, and here is Mesopotamia. This is really the axis along which all these stories go. And the Philistines are Egyptians, according to Genesis 10, and when you have moved into Gerar, you're in the area in between the Promised Land and Egypt. So they go into that area. But they're out. They have left the land of promise, which doesn't want them. Last week, one famine after another. And until the days of Moses, the Promised Land keeps trying to kick them out. It does not want them, so it famines them out. And they go out of the land. As he leaves, God appears to him, theophany. Then we have with the Gentiles, number four. That's the fourth event, while he's with the Gentiles. After a while, he starts to prosper and develop a lot of riches while he's with the Gentiles, but they're struggling with him the whole time, trying to prevent him from having those riches. But he gets blessing anyway. That's number five. Number six, God appears to him again. Another theophany. And then the Gentiles come and want a covenant with him and they convert. And then there is after that a crisis which leads to new events. And the new crisis is in 26.34 to 27.40. The next story of Jacob and Esau contending for the inheritance where Rebekah sets up the deception of her wayward husband. Now that sequence of events is an anticipation of everything that happens with Jacob. Because what's going to happen with Jacob? Well, Esau's going to say, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Jacob has to leave. And he goes out of the promised land to Mesopotamia. And when he's there, what happens? On his way out of the promised land, what happens? God appears to him. A theophany. A ladder reaching up to heaven. And then he gets to the promised land and he lives with the Gentiles. And everything's okay. And then he engages in 20 years of struggle that acquires blessing. He has to work for seven years for wife number one. And then he has to work seven years again for wife number one since he got tricked. Then he has to work for six years and he acquires all kinds of spotted and speckled and striped sheep. And all the things that the Gentiles don't want he gets, which turns out to be good. And then what happens? He's worked, and they've struggled with him, and they keep changing his wages, but he gets blessing anyway, and then what happens? God appears to him and says what? Well, before he says go home, he says, hey, you got all this blessing, but I was the one giving it to you. I mean, you could have stripped these poplar woods and stuck them in front of those sheep all day long, and it wouldn't have made any difference in terms of how many spotted speckled sheep you had. Just as he says to Isaac, you could have dug wells all day long, and you wouldn't have found any water unless I gave it to you. He says, I was the one blessing you, and I'm going to continue to bless you, and now it's time for you to go home. So he heads for home, and then what happens? Laban comes after him, and they make a covenant. And then you have another crisis where God comes to fight with him during the night. You see, 
This story of Isaac and Gerar has exactly the same pattern and structure as the next story, the big story of Jacob. Now, if this was a novel, we would understand all that. And, of course, it is a novel in the sense that God is the supreme playwright of history, and he organized all of these events to fall out according to these patterns so that we would understand how he acts. This is how God acts. If we could really understand these historical patterns and structures better, we would have a better handle on how God acts in history today and in our lives. Ultimately, one would hope that this could come down to something that practical, but I'm still in the information gathering stage on some of these things. But look at it. When Jacob goes to Paddan Aram, what do we find? Now, we can look at this second one here, and what I just talked through, we'll see. Jacob and Esau, that story where they are, now it's not the birthright, but the blessing that's in view, and Jacob gets that too. There's a threat that forces Jacob out of the land. God appears to him at the ladder. Four, he's with the Gentiles. And I've got that moving forward to 2930. How did I divide that up? We'll get into all this later on. But yes, after his wives, after he gets married there. Then I've got blessing amid struggle, which is the birth of the sons and acquisition of property. Sons and sheep. Then God appears to him and says, Hey, I was the one blessing you all this time, Theophany. So he runs away. And then the Gentiles come. Laban comes and says, Hey, let's make a covenant. May the Lord wash between you and me. And what that means is the Shekinah is put between the two of them. And then there's a crisis that leads to new events, which is God's attack on Jacob as he crosses into the promised land. The guardian of the land tries to prevent him from coming in. And Jacob wrestles and Jacob wins. And God says, hey, I've let you win because you're now old enough, mature enough, wise enough to come in. Well, that's not the end of this story because it happens again. The next thing that happens after they come into the land is Esau meets him. Esau had come out with 400 men. Now, Jacob just finished wrestling with Yahweh. And you know, if you can wrestle with Yahweh and prevail, then you don't have to worry about Esau anymore. God says, you're old enough and wise enough to where you can win a wrestling match with me. God says, I'll make myself small enough to where you can win, but in terms of human maturity, that's where you are. You've wrestled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. You don't have to worry about Esau anymore. And Jacob and Esau, they buddy down for a couple of days. Remember, Esau says, why don't you just live with me? And Jacob says, no, I don't think that's a good idea. So he removes himself from Esau. So we have another removal. Then we will see in chapter 33, verse 20, what happens right after that is he builds an altar. It's a place where God meets with man. So we have another theophany type thing there. Then he goes and lives with the Gentiles. He moves into the area around Shechem. What happens there? Well, this is the reverse side story. One of the men of Shechem attacks and ravishes Jacob's daughter Dinah. Now, every time when Abraham went into Egypt, Pharaoh took his wife into the harem. When Abraham went into Gerar, Abimelech took his wife into the harem. When Isaac goes into Gerar, Abimelech says, Hey, one of the men might have raped your wife, and that would have been your fault, and you would have brought judgment on us. Now, they go into Paddan Aram, and he has to struggle in order to get wives, work seven whole years, hope they were worth it. And then he goes into Canaan, and what happens? Another woman is attacked. 
every time the woman is attacked. Every time Satan attacks the bride, in this case, it's the daughter bride. But whether it's mother, daughter, bride, it's all the same imagery. But then it says, you know the story, that Hamor loved her. There's another story in the Bible where a girl was raped and the guy didn't love her at all, right? When Amnon raped Tamar, he didn't love her. It says he despised her and kicked her out. Now that story sheds light on this one. Hamor, son of Shechem, loved Dinah. And so they say, let's covenant with these Hebrews. And of course, some of the men of the city say, yeah, let's covenant with them and we'll get all their wealth. Well, by now we know that won't happen, <laughs> don't we? It's not the Gentiles who are going to get the wealth. So there's no need for that. But remember Simeon and Levi say, sure, go ahead. And they get circumcised. And then while they're incapacitated, they fall on them and murder them all. And instead of blessing coming to the Gentiles because of the faithfulness of God's people, a curse comes to the Gentiles because of the wickedness of God's people. And there's nothing righteous about this. These two sons are cursed, Simeon and Levi. Jacob curses them. God curses them. And when it says, Jacob says, now my name stinks in the nostrils of all the people around here. And I don't have any witness. You've destroyed the possibility of the kingdom having any witness here for a long time. Then we have another theophany. God appears to him and says, put away these pagan gods. Interesting, right after this happens in chapter 35. And of course, we'll get there ten years from now at the rate we're going through these stories Right after Simeon and Levi blasphemed the covenant by using it as a weapon of war instead of as a weapon of evangelism, God appears and says, put away the pagan gods. It's as if he's saying, your household has been under the influence of these pagan gods, and that's why this happened. Put them away. So they dig a hole and bury them. And remember, the ground is where the curse is. You put something in the ground that's not a positive image, usually. And so the gods are killed and buried, and then the covenant is renewed. And we read that in spite of the fact that the Gentiles don't like Jacob and his family, they are also afraid of him. So they don't have anything to do with him. So the sons have wrecked the kingdom for a while. It's going to take a while for the stench of this event to go away. But you'll notice it's the same structure of events. We start with Jacob and Esau again. There's a separation. There's a place where we talk to God. We're with the Gentiles. There's a struggle with the Gentiles, which this time is inverted into a curse. God appears again, and the covenant is emphasized again. Now, I worked this out, and what I'm about to say about Abraham and Joseph, over several weeks, and then I thought to myself, I wonder if this has anything to do with Genesis 1. And in our studies, we have found many times that God in history is recreating and is moving through the same kinds of things that we find in Genesis 1. We found that all over the book of Revelation, and I'm just going to point out to you that there's similar kinds of things happening here. The first slot in this sequence, where we're just introduced to Jacob and Esau, I suggest parallels the idea of heaven and earth. In fact, if we were to start Genesis at the beginning and notice how many times things start off with a pair, and then what happens to that pair that would make even more sense to you. The second thing that happens is a separation. We're forced out of the land. We're separated from somebody. We separate from Esau. There's a separation that takes place. And that is a day two event. 
The day three event is when the land appears in the midst of the sea, and we find on that third slot event that when the angels appeared to Jacob, he raises up a pillar. In the third story here, in Jacob and Canaan, it says he builds an altar. What's an altar? It's a symbolic holy mountain. And so is a pillar. But we'll see this in more detail. Jacob puts this pillar up and he pours oil on it. That's picked up in the Psalms where it says like the dew that comes down on the mountains is the oil that comes down on Aaron. These are all ideas of God coming down on something. And there's a small symbol. A pillar or an obelisk or an altar are all miniature holy mountains. And you have to go up on a mountain to worship God. So if you don't have a mountain, you make one. On the mountain is where the sacrifice takes place, and an altar is a small mountain. And, of course, the altar is called Har-El, Mountain of God, in the Bible. So we have clear proof text for that, too. But there you are, third-day stuff, land raised up. Then, with the Gentiles is the fourth slot in each story. They are the sun, moon, and stars. They are the rulers, and we are witnessing to the rulers. These are the people who are actually in control of these territories. Abraham isn't. Isaac and Jacob aren't. They're just living there as strangers and sojourners. They don't get this land until Moses, until Joshua. So they are with the rulers. The sun, moon, and stars are rulers, of course, in Genesis 1. Then we find the theme of multiplication, which is the day five thing, swarms. We multiply wells in Gerar. We multiply children in Pat and Aram. We wind up killing a bunch of people, the negative of it when we're with the Shechemites. Then we have a visitation from God. The day six thing, God appears and says, Hey, I'm the one blessing you and I'm going to keep blessing you. That's just what he said to Adam and Eve on the sixth day. And then we find a resolution and rest of the story. Gentiles come and make covenant. No more conflict with Gentiles. Rest. Gentiles come and make covenant. No more conflict with the Gentiles. Rest. God sends a great deal of fear into the Gentiles, and so they leave us alone. Not the best kind of rest, but at least there's some rest. So in a general kind of a way, and I think in a fairly specific way in some of these stories, because the literary boundary, the discourse boundary markers, the discourse boundary markers that set these stories up in various paragraphs actually do follow these events quite well. God is making a new world throughout Genesis over and over again, he's showing us what it means for him to make a world and for him to lead us through these things that make the world different. Week by week, one week after another. Start with six days of God's week and then we have man's weeks following. Now, this has happened before in a more general way with Abraham. The whole story of Abraham has the same structure. There's a lot more going on with Abraham, but this much is true. We start off with Abraham and Lot in chapter 12. And the last biblical horizons had a bunch of stuff about Lot. So if you had a chance to read that, you know that Abraham and Lot are a pair. The same way Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Joseph and Judah are pairs. They're a contrasted pair. And the contrast with Abraham and Lot is that Abraham follows God and Lot moves farther and farther and farther away from where he's supposed to be. And this is progressive this separation. When we start out in chapter 12, Abraham and Lot come into the land. Abraham and Lot go down into Egypt. Abraham and Lot come out of Egypt with much spoil. There's your first big exodus out of Egypt in the Bible there in chapter 12. And then they start to separate. 
In chapters 13 and 19, we have a series of separations between Abraham and Lot. The land won't sustain them. Finally, we get to the Sodom and Gomorrah story. What did God say to Lot? What did the two angels say to Lot when he brought him out of Sodom? He said, go to the mountain. Who's on the mountain? Abraham. Lot's last chance to re-covenant with Abraham and get into the kingdom. Lot says, no, I don't want to go there. Let's see, there were five cities here and you've destroyed four, but there's one city left. Can I go over to that city? He still wants to go back to Sodom. So he goes to Zoar. And then he winds up in the mountain, but not a real mountain. He's in the cave underground. When you're underground, you're in the curse. You go into a cave. You go under the earth. You're dead in the midst of life, living in a cave. So there's this separation in chapters 13 to 19. And at the end of chapter 19, we have the third day motif, land raised up. Both Abraham and Lot are pictured on mountains, but they're two different mountains. Abraham is on top of a mountain looking down at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. Lot is moved eventually up into the mountains and lives in the caves. Then what happens in chapter 20? Abraham goes and lives with the Gentiles in Gerar. And, of course, Abimelech grabs Sarah and takes her into his harem. He doesn't mess with her, but he attacks. The Gentile attacks. Abraham says, she's my sister. That means you want her, you negotiate with me. But Abimelech is a tyrant. He doesn't talk to Abraham. He just seizes her and takes her into the harem. And God brings judgment on him for it. Closes up the wombs of all the women in Gerar because he intends to open up Sarah's womb while they're there. Then God appears to Abimelech and says, I'm going to kill you for doing this. And Abimelech walks softly thereafter and is nice to Abraham, of course blames him, says, it's all your fault. It's all your fault that I'm a tyrant. It's all your fault that I seized your sister and dragged her into my harem. That's all your fault, Abraham. God blesses him anyway, and then we have blessing amid struggle. Chapter 2014 to 21.8, and the blessing is the birth of Isaac. Isaac is born in Gerar. Isaac is born outside the Holy Land. Which one of Abraham's sons was born inside the Holy Land? Ishmael. And Ishmael is born at the exact center of Abraham's life. Abraham lived 175 years, and when he was 87, Ishmael is born. Ishmael is the central thing. Gentiles are central. We'll look at that in just a minute. Isaac is born outside the land. It's all so interesting how this happens and what it means. But they have this blessing amid struggle, and the struggle then is with the struggle between Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael is put out. But then number six, the theophany is when God appears to Hagar and Ishmael and says he's going to bless them. Blessing to the Gentiles. In this case, Ishmael. God says, I will be with the lad, Emmanuel. I will be with him. Ishmael's up in heaven. You can talk to him about this when you get there. Esau isn't. But Ishmael and Isaac don't mean the same thing as Jacob and Esau. Ishmael is the converted Gentile. And that's why Paul in Romans, he starts with Ishmael and Isaac. He makes a point about that. And then he moves to Jacob and Esau when he wants to talk. Then we have a covenant with the Gentiles when Abimelech and Phicol, an earlier Abimelech, earlier Phicol, come and make a covenant with Abraham. And then we have a crisis that leads to the new events. And the crisis is the sacrifice of Isaac. Isaac now is positioned as the Messianic son who is also a sacrifice. And he's received back in a type. So typologically, Isaac undergoes death and resurrection, and then he gets a bride. And we looked at this last time. Isaac undergoes death and resurrection as the son, and he gets a bride. 
And then he provides wells of water, which is Pentecost. And that's really the story we're in. We'll get to next week when we see Isaac digging all these wells of water. That is an adumbration of Pentecost where the son who is now dead and resurrected and married now provides water for the entire world. So there's an Abraham story that runs through these same events in the same slot. And I want you to see that the Joseph story does the same. And you have a lot of astral imagery in the Joseph story. As you know, Joseph has the dream of the sun and the moon and the twelve constellations bowing down to him. These individual stars don't bow down, do they? So the lion and the bull, all of these that represent the twelve tribes bow down to him. That's where it starts. It starts, in the beginning God made the heaven and the earth. The earth was dark, but God made light. There you are in 37, 2-11, Joseph and his brothers, the heaven and the earth. Joseph is the heaven, and his brothers are the earth in this story, and Joseph is the light. Well, then there's a separation. Another firmament is put up in between, and people are separated. Joseph is sent down to Egypt. In the third part of the story, we have the land and the sea. Judah is in the land. Joseph is in the sea. The sea is always the Gentile world. The land is always the promised land. And that's in chapters 38 to 40. You remember that the Judah and Joseph story are exactly parallel. Judah gets involved with the strange woman. The strange woman tries to get Joseph involved with her. Joseph resists. Judah succumbed to the prostitute. And she takes his pen and his seal, a little cylinder seal, and the cord that would carry that around his neck. And then he has two sons. And the sons trade places. Remember, one son starts to come out and the other son drags him back and he comes out first. While Joseph is in Egypt, he marries a converted Egyptian girl and he has two sons and those two sons are changed places. When Jacob blesses him, he crosses hands and puts Ephraim over Manasseh. Very parallel, and that's only the beginning of the parallels between the two stories. Judah and Joseph, they're both the same age, both born about the same time. And uh, as we'll see as we get into the rest of the Jacob narrative, we'll see that that's the case. So in the third day motif there, and then Joseph stands before the king, who is Pharaoh and is the sun king. Joseph has made the moon to Pharaoh's son, second in the kingdom. That's the fourth slot. The fifth thing that happens is there's a blessing to Joseph and to all the world as he feeds the entire world grain as the new baker. Then we have a Josephophany. See, all the things that involve theophanies in the earlier stories, there are no altars. There are no worship events in the Joseph story. All of a sudden, God doesn't appear to anybody except in dreams and indirectly. Nobody hears God speaking. Joseph doesn't anyway. He just has dreams. Nobody builds an altar. Not in this story. It's Joseph reveals himself to his family in that slot. And then they come to rest in Goshen. They have Sabbath blessings and judgments. The Sabbath is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, where Jacob comes and passes judgment on his sons and tells Simeon and Levi that they're cursed. And will stay cursed until they reverse the curse in the days of Moses. And then the eighth event is the death of Joseph, which implies future events because when Joseph dies... Well, Jacob dies, they take him back to the promised land. And Joseph dies and says, don't leave me here. But keep me here for now. Keep my body here for now. Take me out and you go. So there is this overall story arc that happens over and over again that relates to Genesis 1. And I think if we could get that into our bones, we would start to see that God works that way in history. 
God does these separating acts. Sometimes when God separates us from where we've been before, we can begin to think, okay, we're going to go into a new challenging situation, but God is with us and He'll bless us there. There's something to be said for understanding that these are patterns of life. Well, that's as much as I'm going to say about that at the moment. I want to try to finish out these notes. The second thing we're discussing here what it means to be with the Gentiles. With the Gentiles is the center of these stories. We're in the land, we get separated out, God appears to us and says, don't worry, you're going to be with the Gentiles for a while. We're with the Gentiles, certain things happen. God appears to us, the Gentiles make covenant and are saved, and we move into Sabbath rest. Gentiles are central in the Old Testament. They are one of the two axes of the ellipse of all creation history. And this is where the Reformed faith often is badly askew. We tend to think that God was only saving circumcised Jewish people in the Old Testament. And of course, that's not the case at all. The Jews were saved for the purpose of ministering to the nations. And the nations are always there. And there's always Gentiles coming in. And of course, we don't know what God was doing through the Noahic covenant and the rest of the world while this history was going on. This is the revelatory history that God did for us in the Bible with Israel. But God's salvific activity was surely going on through the Noahic covenant with people around the world. There's no reason to disbelieve that. The Bible doesn't say that. And the Bible emphasizes the Gentiles. That's why when Jesus comes, his curses on the Pharisees are so strong. He says, you've got the covenant and you're holding it only for yourself. The whole purpose of the covenant was to live sacrificially and be priests to the nations. You don't do that. You've got all these rules that say, I can't go into a Gentile home, it'll make me unclean. That's not in the law. Remember, Peter wouldn't go into a Gentile home. That's a blasphemous abuse of the law. The Bible says exactly the opposite. You ought to be heading into those Gentile homes every time you get a chance. Your whole purpose is to live and be spent for the world. And we see this in Genesis the whole calling of Abraham is in terms of in Genesis 12, verse 3. I'll read from our Fox translation, this literal translation. I will bless those who bless you, and he who curses you I will damn. <laughs> we get to say that when we read this translation. And all the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. That's helpful. All the nations of the earth, the word earth can be either of two Hebrew words, either a structured society, or the dirt. Well, this is talking about the dirt here. Adam was made of soil. The soil is cursed in the sense of prosecuting a curse to Adam. And all those men who are made out of soil and who are under this curse, well, now that will be reversed through Abraham. The whole purpose of it. I'll make you a great nation. I'll make your name great. Notice how this is translated in verse 2 here. I will make a great nation of you and will give you blessing and will make your name great. And then he translates this as a command. Be a blessing. I'll bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. That's why we go to the Gentiles. That's the horrible thing about Simeon and Levi when they massacre a bunch of Gentiles who have converted. Then we read in verse 5, and your translations are not going to be clear about this at all, but I want to point it out to you. I'll just read from verse 4. 
Avram went as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Avram was five years and seventy years old when he went out of Haran. And Avram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their property that they had gained, and the persons whom they had gained in Haran. And they went out into the land of Canaan. The persons whom they had gained in Haran is not talking about slaves. This is not the Hebrew word for purchasing slaves. Rather, it's the word for converts. Abraham has made converts in Haran. And remember the structure of this story. This is, after all, the very first exodus in the Bible. We're in Ur. We leave Ur to come to the Holy Land. Now, what happens? We wind up in Haran. And what is that? Ur is Egypt. And this is the Holy Land. What is Haran? Well, it's Gerar, but what also? In the very, in the, the story we're most familiar with when we talk about an exodus. Yeah, it's the wilderness. And how long does Abraham stay in Haran? Until what happens? Until the older generation dies. And that's how long we were in the wilderness, until the older generation died. And while we were in the wilderness, who was there along with us? Who came out of Egypt along with us? A mixed multitude. But at the end of this period, when we enter the promised land, what's happened to that mixed multitude? They've all been blended in. We don't hear about them anymore. They've all married in and they're all part of Israel. So, see, Abraham acquires people. He makes converts in Haran. The same way later on, the mixed multitude is converted in the wilderness. So, right away, Gentiles are in view. God makes a covenant with Abraham while he's in Ur. He goes into Haran. He spends some years there. And while he's there, he's converting Gentiles. And they come with him into the promised land. Then in chapter 14, verse 13, we see more Gentile converts. These people, they're not going to be circumcised. They're not part of the priestly nation. They're still kind of under the Noahic covenant as saved people, but they're ministered to by the priestly nation. In chapter 14, verse 13, this is during the war of the kings, is sweeping over the land that Abraham is living in but doesn't yet possess. One who escaped and told Avram the Hebrew he was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. They were Abram's covenant allies. That's the way Fox does it. The New American Standard has in the margin, they were allies with Abram. And it says out in the margin, they were possessors of the covenant with Abraham. See, the translators just, they just don't want to believe that these people were saved. But they were. They were covenant allies with Abraham. They worshipped Yahweh too. Abraham led them in worship around the terebinth trees at the oases where he built altars. Gentile converts. And then we have in verse 18 the Gentile sponsorship of the covenant. You always have a Gentile sponsor. Who's the Gentile sponsor of the Mosaic covenant? Comes out and sponsors them. Jethro. Who's the Gentile sponsor of the Davidic Covenant? Who's the Gentile sponsor of the Davidic Covenant? Comes out and sponsors David. He's a Gentile. Helps him build the temple. Hiram of Tyre. Who's the sponsor of the Restoration Covenant? Gentile sponsor. Cyrus and Darius. They build the temple. Always have you. Gentile sponsor. The righteous Gentiles know we want these Jews praying for us because they're the priests. 
And here Melchizedek comes out, and of course there's another Gentile, and he's a Gentile sponsor, and Abraham recognizes that and gives a tithe to him, and he receives bread and wine from him, and all of that is typologically relevant. Then in chapter 16, verses 7 to 11, we have Ishmael. And remember, when we looked at the structure of the Abraham narrative and of Abraham's life, this is the center of it. Verses 7 to 11 of chapter 16. The promise that God gives to Ishmael is the center of the Abraham narrative. The whole purpose of the Abraham story is to bless Ishmael. God raised up Abraham to bless Ishmael. Now, the blessing is going to come through Isaac. But the purpose, the ultimate goal, is to bless Ishmael. God's ultimate goal is to bless us. Now, our blessing comes through Jesus. But God's purpose in sending Jesus to the cross was not to bless Jesus, but through him to bless us. And that's exactly what the story of Abraham is about. Abraham is set up so the blessing can come to the Gentiles. Isaac is set up so blessing can come to Ishmael. That's why Ishmael is at the center of the Abraham story. Because Isaac's death and resurrection and everything is for the whole world. Just as Jesus' life and blessing and death and resurrection is for the world. And that way everybody gets blessed. So what happens to Gentiles in these stories is very important. On page 14, contrast and comparisons, of course we'll come back to this a little bit, but we have basically six stories of going into Gentile territory, and each one of them slightly different. And we want to make a contrast between them, and we'll learn something. In chapter 12, when Abram is taken down into Egypt in the famine, a bride is attacked. They say, boy, this Sarah, she is one cute thing. She is 65 years old, and she is a babe. And so the Pharaoh takes her into his harem, and then God curses them, and they come out with a lot of wealth. The emphasis in that story is the attack on the bride, not the attack on the seed. Enmity would put between you and the serpent and between your seed and his seed. There's enmity with the bride as well as enmity with the seed. And the attack on the bride here. Abraham goes to Gerar. The bride is attacked, but then the son is born. And the whole reason Satan takes Sarah into Abimelech's harem is to prevent Isaac from being born because he just heard the prophecy that in the next 12 months, Isaac's going to be born. And that's when this happens. The emphasis here is an attempt to prevent the birth of the son. Isaac and Gerar, the story that we will get to next week and we are circling in on. The bride is potentially attacked. Hey, one of the men might have raped your wife and then it would have been your fault. But then we get water and wealth. The emphasis here is a provision of water. Wealth, wealth, wealth. Water, water, water. Jacob and Pat and Aram, while he's there, he wins the bride. He gets four of them, as a matter of fact. Sons. And wealth, the emphasis in that story is on labor, as we'll see. Jacob and Canaan, the daughter of a new bride, is attacked. A blessing becomes cursed. The emphasis this time is the reversal. Everything that should have happened, this is the negative instance, the destruction of the covenant by sinful sons. And then there's Joseph in Egypt. He wins a bride. Sons are born. Wealth attained. And the Egyptians are converted. The Pharaoh is converted. And the emphasis is on worldwide blessings. All the world came to Joseph to get bread. How does this relate to Jesus? Well, this is the story of Jesus. He descends from heaven and he returns the kingdom to the Father at the end, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Right? And it's all over, he gives it back to the Father. So, Jesus is in Gentile territory and we're the Gentiles. By his Spirit, he's still here. He's gone to prepare a place for us 
He sent the Spirit to keep Himself still here. And while He's here, He acquires a bride and protects her from attack. The church is attacked generation after generation. Now we want to have these hate crime laws. More hate crime. What that means is, next time we put an ad in the paper and says to homosexuals, you can be saved and you don't have to live this way, they'll come after us and say that we're guilty of hate crime. That's what this is about. An attack on the bride. Jesus will protect us. While He's here, Jesus is acquiring sons, which is also us. We are not only the bride of Christ, we are also the sons of the kingdom. And we might ruin the covenant from time to time. We might be like Simeon and Levi. That's a warning to us. While He's here, He provides the water of the Spirit. Jesus is always digging wells. The kingdom is always digging wells. People fight over I mean, Christianity provided all kinds of wonderful things in our civilization, and then the wicked come and they fight us over it. Where did all these colleges and universities come from? Christians built them. And then the Philistines said, hey, those are ours. We have to move somewhere else and dig another well. And the Philistines come and say, hey, we want that. That's how the kingdom works. Jesus is doing that. And while he's here in Gerar in Egypt, Jesus is spoiling the world of its wealth. Sooner or later... All the riches of the world are going to come to Jesus and then He's going to return to the Father at the end. So you see, this is a very fundamental story. And that's why this story happens over and over again because ultimately it's the story of Jesus and His coming into Gentile territory to do all these things. So I hope that overview gives you a handle on themes in Genesis and next week we will look specifically at Isaac and Gerard. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.